So in 1 Peter chapter 2, we'll begin reading in verse 1. Wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that ye may grow thereby. If so be, ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious. To whom coming as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. Ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house, an holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Wherefore also it is contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Unto you therefore, which believe he is precious, but unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner. And a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lust, which war against the soul, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that, whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they shall behold glorify God in the day of visitation. Submit yourselves to every ordinance of men for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme, or unto governors as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers, and for the praise of them that do well. For so is the will of God, that with well-doing ye may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. As free, and not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as servants of God. Honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward. For this is thankworthy, if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. For what glory is it, when ye be buffeted for your faults, ye shall take it patiently. But if, when ye do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. Who his own self bare our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sin, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye are healed. For ye were as sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. The first epistle of Peter is a general epistle. That means it was written to everybody. This is an open letter to the Christians of his day who have been scattered by persecution, who are suffering the loss of everything, who are in pain, who are fearing for their lives. Peter writes this letter to all of them. It's an open letter. And he's encouraging them in their suffering. He's encouraging them by reminding them of their blessings, by showing them 
the salvation that God has given them by demonstrating how the suffering that they are going through is transforming them. In chapter 1, he compares it to the refining of gold, which is tried by fire. And he reminds them of the blessings that God has given. Now, Peter is a man who understands, who understands blessing, but he understands suffering. Peter understood suffering. Peter loved Jesus. And when Peter said that he was willing to go fight and die for Jesus, he wasn't lying. He, at that moment, he would have charged the entire Roman army by himself. So much Peter loved Jesus. But Peter saw Jesus die. Peter saw Jesus on trial. He saw Jesus put to that cross. How many of us can identify with the pain of seeing a, a loved one pass away? In his weakness, Peter's trying to figure out what Jesus is doing. Because when the soldiers showed up, Peter was the one that drew his sword and cut off Malchus's ear. Jesus healed him, told Peter to put his sword away. I'm not supposed to fight. Peter's there at the trial. And he's not sure what he should be doing here. And he is confronted three times about being one of Jesus' disciples. And he denies it three times. And then the rooster crows. And Peter realizes that what Jesus said, that he would deny him, happens. The Bible tells us Peter went out and wept bitterly. Not only did Peter see his beloved Lord, his beloved Jesus die, but he also failed him. Peter was beaten and he was imprisoned for the cause of Christ. He was sentenced to die before being rescued by an angel. And before Jesus ascended to be at the right hand of the throne of God, Jesus told Peter that when you're old, they're going to carry you to a place you don't want to go. Basically telling Peter that he was going to endure a crucifixion of his own, that he was going to be martyred himself. That takes the possibility of dying in your sleep off the table. Peter understood suffering. But Peter also tasted that the Lord is gracious. He also knew the goodness of the Lord. Jesus returned to Peter in John chapter 21, gave him three opportunities to profess his love for Jesus, which he did. The Lord restored him in that chapter. The Lord brought him back to where he needed to be. The Lord ministered to him in that chapter. And when Peter was beaten in the book of Acts, he did what Jesus told him to do, and he, count, he praised the Lord and that he was counted worthy to suffer for the cause of Christ. 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter is demonstrating this goodness to the refugee Christians. And he is reminding them of the purpose behind all of this and the way that they glorify God in the process. There are a couple of things to keep in mind here. First of all, the things that we suffer are not God's fault. God didn't bring it on us. God did not create it. We did now, maybe your suffering is at the hands of somebody else, but the sin of man and the evilness of man, evilness, is that a word? The evilness of man is what brings on the suffering. But God does use the suffering that is man created to transform man. And not only to transform man, but also to allow man to endure so that man can glorify Christ. You see, how you endure the trials of this world can glorify God. 
Peter talks about in this passage, that it's easy to take responsibility for what you did wrong and take the praise for what you did right. But when you do something right and you get in trouble with it, but you take it patiently, that's what sets you apart from the rest of the world. It's like loving your enemies. It sets you apart from the rest of this world. And so as Peter is discussing all of this with these refugee Christians, these refugee Christians have lost everything, but Peter's saying, listen, this is not without purpose. This is not outside God's power. This is not something that's being poured out on you because God doesn't love you. God loves you, but listen, there is so much going on that you do not see. And you're glorifying God. Everything that you go through, it transforms you. And as you patiently endure and go through that transformative process, you glorify God. Now maybe, maybe the Kendrick brothers will never make a movie about what you've been through. Maybe few other people will know. But some will. And you have no idea who you're being an encouragement to. So in chapter 2 here, Peter demonstrates the goodness of the Lord to the refugee Christians. He demonstrates how the Lord is gracious. He demonstrates the gospel. And he teaches us to live in light of God's graciousness and the gospel. Let's talk about the goodness and the graciousness of the Lord. We look in verse 3. Peter says, If so be ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious. He says, to lay aside the malice, desire the sincere milk of the word, if you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Have you tasted that the Lord is gracious? Have you tasted the goodness of the Lord? Have you experienced God's grace? Have you experienced his graciousness? Have you experienced his goodness? Have you experienced the love of Christ? Or have your experiences with God been religious processes you have gone through in order to avoid eternal damnation? Have you experienced a love and a relationship with the Lord? Or have you experienced a religious right? Did you just say a prayer? Or did you come to know the Lord as your Savior? Have you tasted that the Lord is gracious? Have you tasted that he is good? Have you experienced his love? Have you experienced his salvation? Is he blessing you today? Can you look through everything, the cloud of all the stuff that ails you, can you look through that and see God's blessing in it? My vision of that flounders at times. But I can see God's blessing in his provision. I can see his love. I know that no matter what I go through, I know that God is with me as I go through it. And I can rest in the Lord. You know what? Some days I'm not doing good. Some days I'm not there spiritually. Some days I'm not the spiritual giant. Some days I don't have a legitimate prayer with the Lord. Some day I, every day I pray, but some days my prayers don't progress beyond Lord, thank you for this meal and help me with what I'm about to do. Right? Some days my Bible doesn't open, and that includes the app. Some days the Bible app doesn't open. We're all on the app together. Y'all can tell when I didn't do my, my daily Bible reading plan, all right? It tells on me. Some days it doesn't happen. Some days I fail. Some days I'm not there. 
But I don't have to worry about God casting me aside, God withdrawing his presence from me, God punishing me and coming down on me because I didn't open my Bible app today. Or I didn't have a legitimate prayer today. Or that I didn't enter into his presence today. Because the Lord loves me. And he's with me. And he understands my weakness. He understands your weakness. Have you experienced that? Or are you still worried about stepping on one of those spiritual landmines? Have you tasted that the Lord is gracious? The scripture says in 1 Peter chapter 2 that if so be that you have tasted that the Lord is gracious, what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to do what's in verses 1 and 2. Where, where Peter writes, Wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and evil speakings, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word, that ye may grow thereby. Lay aside the malice. That's the bad, vindictive intent. You know that, I'm going to do this just to get under his skin. That's malice. When your boss has chewed you out that morning and you go to the fast food restaurant for lunch and you're in a bad mood and the lady at the counter doesn't quite get your order right so you take it out on her, that's malice. All right, that's vindictiveness. Laying aside all malice and all guile, that's deceit. That's when you tell somebody one thing hoping to deceive them into believing something that is not true. That's every politician that ever lives. Politicians don't lie. They misspoke. They misremembered. Right? That's guile. Well, we, we had to lie to you to get the bill passed. You, well, the bill is going to be good for you in the long run, but you would have never gone with it if you had known what we were really going to do. So we had to lie to you, but we lied to you for your own good. That's guile. That's deceit. Politicians are masters at it. We don't need to be that like that toward each other. Lay aside all malice and guile and hypocrisies. That's pretending you believe something or pretending that you are something that you're not. The word literally comes from, it's, it's after, and it's, the word comes from the name of a famous actor from ancient Greece way back in the day. It means to act. It means to put on a facade. If you find yourself having to prepare yourself to do it, then you're getting in character and you're probably acting. Evil speakings. That's gossip and slander. Yep. All of this stuff hardens your heart and all of this stuff comes from a hardened heart. But what does Peter tell us to do? He says as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word. I spoke with a man one day. He said, we have a Bible study. He said, but we get down into the meat. We leave the milk behind and we get into the meat. And I understand there's passages in the book of Hebrews that talks about moving beyond the milk into the meat. But if the meat loses sight of the gospel, it's not meat. Okay? The thing about the sincere milk of the word, and, what P and Peter's writing to some pretty... Mature Christians. I say that. You say, but wouldn't they have been babes? Listen, these Christians are going through things you and I cannot imagine. I imagine they, they, could, they could show us some spiritual maturity. He told them to desire the sincere milk of the word. What is the milk? 
the milk, the nutritional value of the word is the gospel. People are preoccupied with going deeper into the word. We got to get deep. Let's move beyond this whole Jesus and salvation stuff and get deeper. Folks, it don't get deeper than Jesus. It don't get deeper than salvation. It don't get deeper than the gospel. If your depth of word moves beyond the gospel, you went too far. Jessica and I took a trip out to California back in 2012. Wanted to go deep into California, see what California was all about. Her GPS, her her turn-by-turn direction navigational system, we were trying to get to Fresno. It told us to take a left-hand turn at Bakersfield and drive a straight line out into the middle of the Pacific Ocean. Oh, that's deep. But if we would have left California and drove deep into the Pacific Ocean, we would have missed the point. We are to desire the sincere milk. And as you go deeper, all you're finding is more gospel, more milk. All right? Listen. The entire Bible, front to end, Genesis to Revelation, is about the gospel. God's redemption through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for our sins according to the scriptures. The deeper you go into scripture, the deeper the understanding, the deeper the types and shadows and symbols, the deeper the teaching, but the teaching never moves away from the gospel. Desire that. Desire that fuller and deeper understanding of God's love and redemption of you. That's deep. Deep to me is a God that loves me in spite of myself. Deep to me is a God that knows my inner thinking and still loves me. Nobody knows my inner thinking. There's things I think about Jessica don't know about. But God still loves me. That's deep. That's the sincere milk of the word. And so Peter is demonstrating the Lord's graciousness. Have you experienced his graciousness, his love, his salvation, his blessing? If so, lay aside the, the bad stuff. Desire the sincere milk of the word. And then verse 5, we are told, Ye also as lively stones are built up into a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Peter here begins to paint us a picture of the construction of the temple, of the construction of Solomon's temple, of the, of the temple that King Herod had, had further built up. He, he's painting a picture of the temple, but instead of talking to us about construction terms, he's talking to us about how we are the construction of the temple. We are the stones. He said we are being built up as stones into a spiritual house. He is saying that we are being built up like each stone of the temple fit together and built this glorious building where people could come to connect to God. That's what God's doing with us on a spiritual level, on on a fellowship level. What is happening here is that the Lord is bringing us together. He saved your soul. He redeemed you by the blood of his only begotten son whom he loved to send to the cross. To pay for your sins. To cleanse you of your sins. To restore you. To redeem you. And what did he do? He brought you in here. 
And so either he brought you in here after a long spiritual walk or you'd already been baptized or he brought you in here as we did baptize you. But he brought you in here and he has joined us together. What you are experiencing here at this church is not the result of a well-programmed presentation that attracts people in here because it's entertaining and it feels good. What has brought you in here is not a great preacher with a great vision. What has brought you in here is a spiritual leadership by the Holy Spirit that has drawn you together and built you into a spiritual house. Like those stones of the temple fit together, we fit together in a spiritual family, in a spiritual fellowship. We are joined together, and let me tell you, this thing is big. It's bigger than me. All right? It's bigger than you. It's bigger than us. This is something that's of God. This is a spiritual movement that has drawn us all together. And I didn't do it. And that's a relief. Because I, I messed something up, you know. Um, but God has built us together and we have this fellowship yes. and this love toward one another. We have this ability to come together, to pray together, to worship together, to learn together, to have different viewpoints on the same scripture. But still, but still understand that we're all still learning. And so even though we have different understandings of the same scripture, we still have fellowship. That's a miracle. That's a miracle because so many people can't find a way to fellowship with somebody else who has a different view of a scripture. I have one view of the rapture. Some of y'all have different views of the rapture. We have different views about dispensationalism. We have different views about this theology or that theology, but we are the same on what matters. Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, redemption, salvation by grace apart from faith, the sinlessness of Christ, his perfection, his all-encompassing atonement for our sins, the virgin birth, the major things, the five things that cannot be compromised, we have that. We are the same. We have been built together in spite of our differences in those things. And we fellowship and we understand that I'm still learning and you're still learning. And that a few years down the road, I may find that I was wrong on some things and I learned from you. And you may find that you were wrong on some things and you learned from me. But we have been brought together in this fellowship of the gospel. That's a spiritual thing. That's not a manly thing. That's not a man-made thing. That's not an artificial thing. God did that. Verse 6. We are told that what holds us all together is the cornerstone. And that cornerstone is Jesus Christ. He is the cornerstone that holds us all together. And when the Lord ordered the building of the temple in the Old Testament... There was a purpose for that. The tabernacle as it was built in the book of Exodus. If you look at that Hebrew word and draw out the meaning, it means the tent of meeting. That's where you went to meet God. The temple replaced the tabernacle. It was where you went to meet God. It was where you went 
to be forgiven of the Lord, to seek God's forgiveness and to seek restoration, to seek his will, to seek his comfort, to seek his salvation. That was the purpose of the temple. God's purpose for us, the Bible tells us in verse 5, are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood. This means that the purpose of our fellowship here, our coming together here, it's bigger than ourselves. It's bigger than us finding comfort in each other. It's bigger than us encouraging each other. It's bigger than us learning from each other. We have a mission here. We have a purpose. And that purpose is to serve, is to serve as the temple for early Texas, where people know that they can come to meet with the Lord. Our purpose here is to connect people with God, to minister to people, to help people, to tend to people who need help, and to minister his word. To people. That's why God has brought us together. Yes. Verse 9. But ye are a chosen generation. A royal priesthood. A holy nation. A peculiar people. That ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness. Into his marvelous light. I want to start at the end of that verse. He has called us from darkness into his marvelous light. Yes. Leland Acker, in 1998 and 1999, a student at Stephen F. Austin State University, was in darkness. When I remember those college days, I remember darkness. First of all, because most of the time I was awake, it was at night. All right. But secondly, because I was in darkness in my spiritual condition and in my thought process. But the Lord came. He sent messengers into my life. He sent preachers and youth directors and Christians and evangelists and people with an insane amount of patience and understanding to minister God's word to me. And he rescued me from that darkness and brought me into his marvelous light. The world makes more sense to me now than it ever has. I see the Lord's hand in more things now than I ever have. He rescued me from darkness into his marvelous light. Why did he do that? Verse 9, we are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. He has formed us into a royal priesthood and a holy nation. We have purpose. We have mission. There is a reason you are still here, and it is to serve in this role, to serve as a royal priesthood priest yes. you rule with Christ Amen. you minister with Christ Amen. a royal priest what did the priest do he interceded on behalf of his nation he prayed for him we should be praying for others we should be praying for our loved ones we should be praying for those who don't know the Lord we should be praying for our community we should be praying for our nation our nation's in sad shape right now our nation is in sad shape. I love our country. I love America. I honor our, I don't do a good enough job of it, but I honor our vets. I'm a patriot. But you look at what our country stands for. What our country has decided it's going to stand for. Our country has, is becoming openly hostile to Christ. And our country is slandering Christians. 
We are being spoken of, and this mentioned in the scripture, we are being spoken of as evildoers. We're the problem. You send a kid to history class at the local college. Well, not this local. I don't know what Howard Payne's teaching. I know the college I went to, what was being taught in history class, was all wars were started by religious people. And by religious people, we mean Christians. Right? So we're to live above that. So that in verse 15, so is the will of God that with well-doing ye may put to silence the foolishness of ignorant men. Live above that. When somebody starts talking down Christians, don't get up and start arguing with them and start making a scene. When you're on, when you're on Facebook and somebody posts something anti-Christian, you know, something, and it's always about being judgmental or this, that, or the other, don't start a Facebook war. All right? Live above that. All right? Let their ignorance and their foolishness show. We're the priests. So we need to be praying for our country. Because this is mainstream thought now. This is normal thought now. We, we, are no, we can no longer assume that the community at large basically agrees with what we believe. In terms of who Jesus is, in terms of the existence of God, in terms of what's right or wrong. We can no longer assume that the general public agrees with us. Because they don't. We need to pray for them. The government thinks it can solve the problems. The government can't solve the problem. The government cannot solve the problem of people who look for answers at the bottom of a beer bottle or in the smoke of a crack pipe. The government cannot solve that problem. We have to pray for them. The government cannot solve the problem of fatherless households. We have to pray for them. And in some cases, we have to step up and be the fathers or mothers. The government cannot solve the problem of the destruction that sexual immorality is bringing to our nation. And when I say sexual immorality, I'm not speaking in code here. Heterosexual immorality and homosexual immorality. It's all destroying our country. Because it's creating the fatherless households. It's creating the mothers who abdicate their responsibility. It's creating a generation of people who were raised by the streets. Government going to solve that problem? Donald Trump going to solve that problem? Will the Republican Party solve that problem? We know the Democrats won't solve the problem. The Libertarian Party don't want to solve the problem. They'll tell you that. It's not up to us. Who solves the problem? Jesus. We pray. We're a royal priesthood people. And a holy nation. That's your identity. That's your heritage. Heritage. Isn't heritage a good thing? I like heritage. I come from a long line of tomato farmers. I don't mean successful multi-tycoon. I'm talking we were tenant farmers. Tomatoes. One of my cousins got successful at growing tomatoes. He started his own Acres tomato business. I've got the plaque with the name of the business on it at the house. Heritage. Some of us are native-born Texans. The rest of us got here as soon as we can. We celebrate being Texan. When you're Texan, you just take the bull by the horns and you solve the problem. We're Americans. We conquer the frontier. We build something out of nothing. 
We made prosperity and we create the things that the rest of the world enjoys. That's our heritage. Your heritage as a child of God is bigger than that. That's your identity. America will change. Texas will change. Tomato farming will change. God will never change. And that's a heritage that will, I mean, you want to talk about heritage. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 12, seeing that we are encompassed about by such a great cloud of witnesses, you have a long heritage of enduring. You have a long heritage of being blessed. You have a long heritage of seeing God move when nobody could. You have a long heritage of deliverance, of reconciliation, of redemption, of cycles of sin and poverty being broken. That's your heritage, a holy nation, an identity. All of this to show forth the Lord's praises. The Lord is gracious. Peter demonstrates the gospel. In verses 6 through 8, he says, Wherefore also it is contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Y'all know who that cornerstone is? Jesus. Verse 7, Unto you therefore which believed, he is precious, both unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner. There was a story when King Solomon's temple was being built. They got the stones at the quarry and they're cutting the stones at the quarry because the temple site was a holy site. You can't have construction noises at the holy site. So they cut the stones at the quarry to fit and then they ship them to the temple site. And so they get the stone. This is an A7. It goes here. This is a B12. It goes here. That's a C14. Okay, not well. C14 is okay. C4 not good. But there's a you know it goes there, and they've got these stones, and they're fitting them together. And then they get the stone, and where does this thing go? And they can't figure out where to put it. And dudes at the quarry must be off their game today. They throw it over the cliff. They get the rest of the stones. They build up the they build up the temple. All right, quarry, we're ready for the the cornerstone. They say we sent it last Tuesday. What do you mean you sent it last Tuesday? Oh, yeah, we sent it. Here were the dimensions. Like, oh, that was the one we threw over the cliff. We might want to go down there and get that thing. And they go down there and they get it. All right. The stone which the builders rejected become the head of the corner. The Bible teaches us when Jesus came to this world, man rejected him. His nation rejected him. He was rejected and despised by men. He was placed upon a cross to be crucified where he gave his life for the sins of all mankind. But he rose again, and he was rejected upon his first coming. But he is now the chief cornerstone that those who come to salvation go through him, and those who reject him will be destroyed by him. Verses 24 and 25 remind us, who his own self bear our sins and his own body on that tree that we being dead to sin, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes we were, ye were healed. For ye were as sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and the bishop of your souls. Jesus Christ suffered and died for us on the cross. And when he died on the cross for our sins, our sins were nailed to that cross with him. We have been cleansed of the guilt of sin as a result. Because of the cross, we are healed. And the sinful cycles 
can stop right now. It takes one generation to turn a family legacy from being godly to being heathen. It takes one generation to break that cycle. But it's harder to get the generations to break the cycle of godlessness. But it happens. And it happens. Because Christ brought that healing on the cross. Christ suffered for us. We should be willing to suffer for his glory. And in that we will talk about how to live in light of the gospel. In verse 21 the Bible says. For even here unto were ye called. Because Christ also suffered for us. Leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps. In chapter 2, Peter tells us to do a lot of things that seem unfair. We are to be subject to our masters, even the bad ones, in verses 18 and 19. We are to be willing to suffer for doing good, in verse 20. Why? To glorify God. In verse 12, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. They're going to speak evil of you. You keep honoring and glorifying God anyway. You keep living for the Lord. You keep an honest conversation with them. You treat them right. Because that's what's going to glorify God in the day of visitation. Verse 15. For so is the will of God, that with well-doing you may put the silence, the ignorance of foolish men. How can we be expected to do this? Because Christ did it for us. We should be willing to do it for him. We have been blessed with each other. This common fellowship. All my life, church was something I went to. Every time the doors opened, church was something I went to. Here, church is something I'm a part of. We have this common fellowship, this common identity, this common purpose. Peter says, God has been good to us to give us this. Let's live it out.